Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. That's the first time he talks about 42 months. In chapter 10, we saw John eat the scroll, remember? And just like Ezekiel had eaten. And now in chapter 11, John is once again having an experience that is very parallel to something that Ezekiel experienced. He was given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple. Now, this story is found in Ezekiel 40 through 43. And there's an extended passage where Ezekiel is measuring a temple. Now, there's differences between Ezekiel's vision and John's vision, but there's also similarities. Uh, The temple in Ezekiel was measured extensively, but in Ezekiel's vision, he did include the outer court and the measurements, whereas in John's vision, he was told specifically, don't measure the outer court. There are a few other biblical examples of a vision involving measuring. In Zechariah chapter 2, a man measured Jerusalem in a, a scene that was evidently speaking to God's restoration of the city. In fact, one could very clearly infer that maybe restoration has to do with this. And in Revelation chapter 21, as we'll get to it soon, the new Jerusalem, our eventually heavenly home, is, is measured. So we, we see this principle. And the first question that you've got to ask here in chapter 11, interpreting it, is what temple is he measuring? We all agree he's measuring a temple. This is not the first time in Scripture that a temple was measured for some prophetic reason. What temple is this? The reckoning of most scholars is that John Wright wrote this 20 years after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. Now, there's a few people that argue that, but overwhelmingly, and the witnesses I shared last week of, of certain church, early church writers, is that John is writing this, it's maybe anywhere between 80, 90, and 96. So the temple had been destroyed in AD 70. So is he measuring the existing temple in Jerusalem? It's kind of hard to believe that. Throughout history, there have been two temples built on Mount Moriah. Uh, in, a, in, a, in an actual construction sense, there were three, but people, historians talk about the first temple period and the second temple period. Um, the land for the temple site there in Jerusalem, for those of you who don't know, I'll take the time to explain, is also, um, it, it's there on Mount, top of Mount Moriah. It's described in Scripture as the place where Abraham first went to offer his son Isaac. That's the first picture that we see of it. So it had incredible significance to the plan of salvation uh, right there in the beginning. Later in the days of Saul and David, the flat rock that was on the crest of the hill was being used as a threshing floor. And when David saw it, he saw an angel of the Lord standing there who stopped judgment on the city. And so David bought the piece of property, and he gave it to Solomon to use it. And it was always David's intention to build a temple there. Ultimately, Solomon, his son, was the one who would build a temple. And that first temple stood on the top of that mountain for generations. It was considered one of the greatest construction wonders of history. And, And generations came and generations went until finally the temple and its walls in Jerusalem were destroyed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar in accordance with the prophecies of many, including Jeremiah and Isaiah. See, 70 years later, 70 years after the 
temple was destroyed. The exiles who had been sent to Babylon were sent back from Babylon, and within a few years, they had built what's known as the second temple. It was considerably more humble than the one that Solomon had built. In fact, when they saw it, they wept. Uh, those who were old enough to remember what the first one had looked like, they wept when they saw it. Now, what most people think of when they think of the second temple, if you run ahead to that next one, is the expansion of the temple. Herod the Great made a significant expansion of that second temple. He flattened out the, a much larger area. He created a much larger courtyard and created an incredible, incredible structure that's described in great detail by the historian Josephus, and that was the temple that was standing in Jesus' day, the one that was destroyed in A.D. 70 by Titus and the armies of Rome. So since a few years after the birth of the church, there has not been a Jewish temple on earth. What do you think about that? For 2,000 years almost, really, there has not been a physical Jewish temple. So John is probably measuring something else, one that doesn't exist yet, is to come, or is symbolic. Some say that John is measuring a temple that will be built in the last days. Others say that measuring the temple is symbolic of the church. Well, maybe they're both right. I don't know. Um, does the Bible specifically promise that a literal Jewish temple will be built in Jerusalem, rebuilt in Jerusalem before the end? This is the subject of some controversy. But once again, undaunted, we shall wade in. Some believe that the quote from Amos 9.11 is evidence that he's going to rebuild a temple. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, build it as it used to be. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, by the way, quotes this passage again in Acts 15. But in a real sense, David's tent or tabernacle was not the tabernacle of Moses, nor was it the temple in Jerusalem. David's tabernacle was a tabernacle of worship. David actually put a, put a, put a tabernacle on top of Mount Zion. David, of course, was this guy who, who had worshiped and transformed his life. He had learned how to get a hold of the presence of God when he was a shepherd in the wilderness and when he was on the run from Saul. And when David was in a panic, he'd get a hold of the presence of God and it was how he learned to survive. In fact, the heart of him as a worshiper was crafted, I believe, as, a, as an act of survival. But David wanted, had a vision to bring the people of Israel into an intimacy of worship. And so he built this tabernacle. And for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 33 years at this tabernacle on top of the mountain, you heard constant worship coming forth. Constant, I mean, he hired full-time singers, full-time uh, worship leaders, musicians, and this was this incredible tabernacle of worship. So when people specifically speak of David's tabernacle as opposed to the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon, it could have a completely different meaning, okay? So it could, that prophecy could very well be referring to the fact that there is a rebirth or an explosion of Davidic-style worship in the latter days, which isn't hard to believe because we've certainly seen it in our lifetimes. I mean, I, I, I realized that the world had changed when I was traveling with my daughter one time in the southern Philippines. This is a Muslim area. I mean, it was a completely Muslim community I was in, and I was going through these shops, and this was, gosh, this was probably 2003, maybe, 2004, and, and I saw these little vendors out there, and they were selling Hillsong music. 
And I went, you got to be kidding me. And I thought, the world has just changed. Because there's, th- th- that's how explosive modern worship has been. And uh, so it's certainly easy to see that there is, is, and I think a significant sign of these days, and there's probably people in this room who want to say amen to this, a significant sign in the days in which we're living is there is a great resurgence of worship around the world. And there's places where there's 24-hour worship going right now in uh, response to this vision of David's tabernacle. But that being said, there are other scriptures that do possibly suggest a literal temple will someday stand again in Jerusalem, depending on how you interpret it. If, for example, the abomination that causes desolation spoken by Daniel and Jesus is to be literally fulfilled again, if there is a literal antichrist who's going to stand in a temple and proclaim himself to be God, well, there has to be a temple, right? Um, Jesus told us that this antichrist leader will someday break his covenant and bringing sacrifice and offerings to an end. And, you know, this is talked about in Daniel 9 and As I've shared before, this is one of those passages that got fulfilled and has been fulfilled again. And that's important to realize that we see that when Daniel prophesied it, it happened under the Greeks when Antiochus did what he did. And then, and if you guys weren't here for that class, please get the tape. I don't know what week it is, but just listen to the whole thing. It'll just take you a few weeks. Um, Because I think that aspect of, of understanding the book of Revelation is probably more critical than anything I've shared with you the whole time is that there's actually multiple times that we see the word of the Lord being fulfilled in history as the word of God is living and active. And that certainly has happened. And Jesus said it will be fulfilled again. And it certainly was fulfilled again during the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And I believe ultimately may very well be fulfilled in the Antichrist era, uh, in a literal Antichrist. These days, most futurists agree that a temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem before the middle of the Great Tribulation. Of course, in a practical sense, it is not without complications. The general area where the temple stood is called by the Muslims the Noble Sanctuary and contains two of Islam's most holy shrines. So you can imagine how well received the idea of tearing them down and building a Jewish temple is. Um, You know, actually, there are many um, commentators who have called, historically, the presence of those Muslim shrines on that mountaintop, the abomination that causes desolation. Because a false religion has set it up there to be worshipped, and that's, that's how they have interpreted it, okay? Um, and because many believe that it is inevitable that some form of temple has to be rebuilt there, a lot of evangelical groups really watch with interest everything happening in the Holy Land. There are certain Orthodox Jews and conservative Jews who strongly desire to see a literal temple rebuilt. There are groups interested in rebuilding the temple and resuming the sacrifices, and there are actively people today making preparations to do it. I don't have to go into all the details. Some of you are familiar with this. You can actually visit the Temple Institute, the Jewish quarter in the old city, and there's a group of people who are dedicated to rebuilding the temple and educating the public on this whole concept and raising awareness of a new temple. Um, They're trying to replicate everything they can um, for a new temple. There have been people who've tried to breed and actually succeeded at this point in breeding a a red heifer, which (laughs) I promised I wasn't going to talk about the red heifer in the book of Revelation class. But this is something that that there's a lot. There there had to be ashes of a red heifer for certain ritual purifications, so they said we have to be able to do that. There are people who take this so seriously, they have bred a red heifer. 
to make it happen, and it required a certain amount of genetic breeding to make it, to, to make, to make it happen. Okay? There's another group called the Faithful of the Temple Mount who, uh, who say they'll continue their efforts to reestablish the, the Jewish temple uh, there on the mount. Their students who are being trained for the priesthood, learning how to conduct animal sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. One leader of that group said, we will continue our struggle until the Israeli flag is flying over the Dome of the Rock. Well, as you can imagine, quotes like that make, <clears throat> make things real calm in Jerusalem. To be fair, I, if those of you who've been there, travel there, you know that the vast majority of Israeli Jews are not interested in a rebuilt temple. It's not in their mind. Um, they, they don't think it's important to have a physical temple. To them, they're afraid of the war or the strife or the problems that would be caused. And they're like, y'all, be quiet, y'all. Shh, don't talk like that. You're going to create a problem. And, uh, but there's others that are absolutely committed to it. This is the stuff of great drama, isn't it? And it's one of the reasons why there has been a lot of wonderful speculative fiction written about it. Because th this is extremely, this is, this is history in its most dramatic climaxes when people talk about it. The, these possibilities, okay? How could this happen? If there's going to be a new temple, will there be a war that destroys the dome? Or will there be an earthquake? Or will it just disappear magically from the top of the mountain? Boy, I've heard it all. And there's a lot of different viewpoints out there. But I'll also point out that historically, most Christians did not believe that there needed to be a literal temple. They believed that the temple John measured was not a literal temple. It was referring to the church. I mean, there's, you, you know why they believe that, because Paul says things like in Ephesians 2.19. He says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but and he's talking to Gentiles now. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members in the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, whom the whole building being joined in together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So the church is commonly... Um, First Peter also refers to the church as a spiritual house. Because there's verbiage in the New Testament that refers to the church as a house or a temple, then some people say, well, there doesn't have to be a literal temple. So I'll just say that uh, the most common view today is that someday there will be. Now, whether or not that happens, I don't know. How it's going to happen, we don't know. It's chapter 11, y'all. Come on. Whatever this temple is, God told John to measure it. God gave John a measuring rod, and he told him to measure, and that unquestionably speaks of God's authority to evaluate and judge his church and possibly Israel. God himself set the dimensions for the first tabernacle, right? God has the authority and the right to measure, and he does. In several places in the Old Testament, the idea of measuring also gives two things, messages of ownership, protection, evaluation, and restoration. I think that's significant because if anything, the idea of measuring, um, keep in mind, Ezekiel had to measure a temple. There's some debate as to whether the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed yet when Ezekiel measured it. But if, it's, if it had been, it's a similar thing. It's almost a prophecy of something that is to come, that God is doing some sort of work of restoration, and God has given us the message, I am in charge. Um, but not everything is measured here in the vision. God said, but leave the outer court, which is outside of the temple. It's given to the Gentiles. 
Some say this is because the outer courts of the temple uh, include the Islamic Dome of the Rock, and some people say that, uh, that those were on the outer courts and we could build, build a temple there without tearing them down. Maybe some of you have heard that teaching. I, I don't know if it could be done or not. But the reason John is specifically given is that the holy city is going to be downtrodden by Gentiles for 42 months. The trampling of Jerusalem by Gentiles is believed to reflect the last half of that great tribulation period, and they believe that this is God pouring out his fury on the literal uh, physical nation of Israel. Again, preterists don't believe that. Historicists don't believe that. Then he says in verse 3, I will give my power to the two witnesses, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the true olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Wow, and with that, we are introduced to two of the more interesting characters of chapter 11 in the book of Revelation in general. They're commonly referred to as the two witnesses. Their calling is obviously of the fivefold ministry is prophetic. They clearly prophesy, clothed in sackcloth, which, by the way, speaks of a call to repentance. So clearly these guys have a call to repent and change. And they have a signs and wonder, amazing, miraculous power ministry. God calls them the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, Zechariah had a vision of two olive trees connected to two oil lamps. And in his day, he was referring to Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, two men who were involved in doing what? The rebuilding of the temple. That's what those guys were doing at the time. They were rebuilding the city. They had led the group of exiles back in. So it's interesting that this same, at the very least, prophetic symbolism is is introduced because that's where that comes from. In the vision from Zechariah, oil lamps are constantly being filled from the olive trees, and it piped oil right from the trees into the lamps. And that, that's symbolic of something really significant, a never-ending abundant supply. It speaks of the Holy Spirit being the source of the power, the Holy Spirit being the source of these men's fire. They're not, they're not running on their own energy, their own talent, their own giftedness. Whatever's happened is a supernatural flow from the Spirit that is running in these guys' lives. If anyone attempts to harm these two witnesses, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. Hello. Now, is this literal or is it figurative? Regardless, it's very clear that these two witnesses have protection from God. Now, some point out that this is similar to Elijah's ministry. Uh, some, uh, you know, these guys also have the power to bring plague and drought, which is similar to the power that Moses and Elijah have. So who are these two witnesses? The Bible doesn't say. Men say, but the Bible doesn't say. So it's open season for speculators, and different commentators all have their champion. It's kind of like who wrote the book of Hebrews, right? Everybody's got their champion. Um, the leading contenders are Moses, Elijah, and Enoch. Of course, there's only two of them, so someone got left out in the cold here. Um, but perhaps these are merely two believers ministering in the spirit and power of these two great men, right? Or even as John the Baptist went in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? So it could be any number of things. Because people were looking for a literal Elijah to come, and what happened when John the Baptist came, 
you know, because Malachi said, you know, I'm sending the prophet Elijah to you, right? And so people are going like, Elijah's coming back, Elijah's coming back. And what we had is John the Baptist, who, who kind of had some similarities to Elijah. And Jesus actually is the one who told us that John the Baptist is the Elijah who is prophesied to come, right? So the Lord does this stuff. And so these people may very well be functioning in the same spirit and power of those guys. Some think it's Enoch because he was carried up to heaven. He didn't die, okay? Some think it's Elijah because, okay, yeah, he called down far from heaven. He had the power to shut up the skies, and he also didn't die. He was caught up into heaven, right, in a whirlwind. Some people think it's Moses because, of course, Moses appeared on the mountain of transfiguration. His ministry had some similarity to these witnesses. And keep in mind that there was some sort of dispute over the body of Moses. We're told in Jude that, that, that the Lord literally... Moses had been buried, but then the Lord specifically wanted to retrieve his body. That's a kind of an unusual passage. The Lord had some reason for literally not wanting to leave the body of Moses in the ground. So some people think, ah, it's going to be Moses. Again, we don't know. Just to give you the other perspective, some historicist commentators believe strongly that these two witnesses were the two groups that were the forerunners of the Reformation, the groups that stood against the power of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, the Waldensians and the Albigensians, um, which were two movements that probably, how many of you are actually familiar with those strange names I just brought up? That's a, okay, buddy is good. Okay, well, I'll, just, I'll proceed them. Um, audience of one, uh, the, I'll tell you more about them shortly. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up. But others argue that that's a kind of a very European-centric view of the book of Revelation. Um, among the futurists, some debate whether this is the first half or the second half, but, but everybody's going to debate, right? Verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, this is the first time we hear about the word beast, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Wow. This expression, beast, is going to be used 36 times before this book is over. And whether or not this is the same beast that we see rise up in chapter 13 or whether this is Satan... Some people believe that because he comes out of the uh, bottomless pit, it's Satan. Other people believe this is another demonic personality. Regardless of that, whether they're the same person, they're clearly working in conjunction with Satan. So, you know, the big picture is the power, the source of the problem is all the same. Um, to many who are your more allegorical or spiritual interpreters, they, they, they see the beast simply as the antichrist spirit that's at work uh, in the world and has been at the work in the world since Apostle John first talked about this. We'll, we'll deal more with that when we get to chapter 13. Here these guys are having this incredible move of God. These two men are, or witnesses, forces, whatever they are, as you choose to interpret them. Uh, classically, I think most people nowadays believe there will be literally two men who have this incredible prophetic ability. Um, they're having incredible ministry, but Satan, you know, ultimately, like every great ministry, attacks them with all the ferocity that he can possibly muster. And for a long time, it appears that God doesn't allow anything to harm them, but at some point, they are killed. And when they are killed, they're literally left laying in the streets for the world to see. And it's interesting, 
that it says specifically, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Well, if it's where our Lord was crucified, we're clearly talking about Jerusalem, right? Sodom, of course, speaks of immorality. Egypt tends to speak of the oppression and the world system. And when he uses the phrase, the great city, actually that's often attributed to the phrase, to Babylon. So it's really, he's throwing so many different symbols at us here, it's like your head is spinning to keep track of it. But the, when the Babylon, you're usually talking about the birthplace of man's idolatry, the religious systems of the world, all just caught up in the city of Jerusalem. We'll deal more with Babylon as we move ahead. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, and we'll celebrate by sending each other gifts because the two prophets who had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, the whole earth saw and rejoiced over the death of these two witnesses. And the fact that it's witnessed by people, tribes, tongues, and nations specifically is thought by many to be a prophecy of modern mass media. I mean, it's not hard to think, live from Jerusalem, you know. And so it's, again, here it's very easy to, in our modern era, imagine trying to interpret this 100 years ago. But nowadays, it's easy to see how some event, every person on earth could be looking at these images before the news cycle was over and going, yay, those guys are gone. And they rejoiced. The world rejoiced in the death of these people. You know what? That is not hard to imagine today when you see the kind of vitriol that is often leveled at people who speak the Word of God. It's not hard to imagine. It used to be hard to imagine. It's not now. But after three and a half days, this is verse 11, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. The eyes of the world are watching, and suddenly these two bad God, dead bodies get up and start walking. I mean, this is, <laughs> I'll leave the zombie humor aside, you know. But the whole world is like, Oh, my. And then they ascend to heaven in a cloud, and the world watches. You know, this is literally like one of the greatest dramas in human history. There is no wonder that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins have made millions selling these books. This is drama, isn't it? I mean, it's really, I mean, how do you, how do you ask for more of an interesting narrative than what these guys are, are, are describing here? Um, now, the historicist... And the historicists kind of look at the book of Revelation as a description of history. They have a different interpretation of this. They, they tend to see, as I mentioned, those two groups uh, that in Europe, very European-centric view of the, the Albigensians uh, and the Waldensians. Um, uh, you know, the vast majority, it is interesting, you've got to do point out that, that the vast majority of Christians throughout most of the church age have actually been in Europe. You think about it. Um, there are some exceptions to that, but if you really think about the history of the church, the, the bulk. Now, that's changing. Uh, Western Europe had, was the center of Christianity, and then Western Europe and the United States were the center of Christianity. The center of Christianity has actually shifted. You have more Christians in Africa. You have more Christians in Asia. And frankly, you have a whole lot of them in South America. now. So we are no longer the center of Christianity. We were most of my life. That's how quickly it's happened. But because of revivals and movements that have happened around the world, uh, really the center of Christianity is no longer focused in the West. But for, historically, it was for, for, for quite a long time. And there were two major groups that took their stand against the Pope and really, really opposed the Pope. And uh, they were early forerunners to the Reformation. 
Um, in 1514, the Vatican what is called what is called the Fifth Lateran Council, and the purpose of the council was to stamp out all the opposition to the Pope's authority. And on May 5th, 1514, they issued a declaration that all that resistance that had been done by the Waldensians and the Albigensians was done with, and there were no more oppositions to the authority of the Pope. Three and a half years to the day, a guy named Martin Luther nails his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. So do you see why they go, wait, this is the fulfillment of that, you know? I mean, it's, so I go back to my whole point about how prophecy is just, un, I mean, it overtakes history. The word of the Lord over and over and over repeats in these incredible divine echoes. So do I really think that was a coincidence? I have a hard time seeing it as a coincidence. But is it prophetically symbolic of something else to come? Probably. Probably. So there's a greater picture. Anyway, this is why I love this history stuff, because I do believe we see incredible signs all throughout the ages. In that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is an earthquake that brings judgment, moves many to, to give glory to God, but it remains to be seen if this is a true, true repentance. The second woe has passed, verse 14, and now the third woe is coming soon. Remember last week we started and we said it's beginning what he called, what the commentators call the interlude, the long period between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now the seventh trumpet is finally getting ready to sound. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. Now, that word, I talked about it in like the second week, the Almighty. Nine out of the ten times that word is used in the New Testament, it's in the book of Revelation. The word is panocrator, and it, it basically literally translates the one who has it all in his hand. The one who has it. So he says, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Panocrator. You've got all of this in your hand. The one who is and was and is to come because you've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come for the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now, when the seventh seal opened, there was silence. When the seventh trumpet sounds, there's a party in heaven. I mean, it explodes in these prophetic declarations, and people are saying, the kingdom of, our, of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord, of our Lord, and is his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, there's two things to point out here. One of them is that when the seventh trumpet sounds and these guys are making these declarations, it hasn't happened yet. There's still a lot of stuff to happen in the narrative. But they're already prophetically declaring what is getting ready to happen as it is here. They're calling what is not as though it, as though it were. Okay? I think that's significant. So these are prophetic declarations that are being made in heaven that will control what happens on earth. I hope you're getting that. Because so much of the time, the people of God when we declare in the heavenlies, 
beforehand that which will happen. It brings it to pass on earth. Boy, there's another sermon in that. We'll preach it another time. It's a powerful lesson for his children. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Now, you want to know where the Ark of the Covenant is? That's why Indiana Jones didn't find it. <laughs> Sorry. At very least, we see in this picture that it, there's an Ark of the Covenant in heaven. I want to point out something. How many of you were here last week? I talked about in, in, in the, the previous chapter, he says that in the time of the seventh trumpet blowing will be the completion of the great mystery. And we talked about the great mystery that Paul refers to over and over, which is Israel's relationship to the church, how Israel's temporary rejection uh, of, of, of God and the gospel was the, the Gentile world's acceptance and that there would ultimately be a reunification, all this. And remember that he's talking about this, and he says that in this time, so he's already told us that in the previous chapter. So somehow in the midst of this is that moment when this great mystery of Israel and the church wraps up. And in the midst of this, he's saying the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. He will reign forever. And at the same moment, we're seeing this Ark of the Covenant viewed in heaven. So God is remembering his covenant with Israel. He's remembering these things, and all of this is coming to a very, very powerful climax in history. Regardless, this shows us one thing. God still honors the covenant. What began long ago is a covenant with a man named Abraham and continued through a nation called Israel, has continued now with the ecclesia, called out assembly, the church, and it is all still in place. And there is coming a shaking and a justice, a supernatural justice is coming to the earth. And it will be. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.